Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Shi, the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden, also a freshman at UCLA. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I'm the author of The Watergate Girl, and based on my experience as a Watergate prosecutor, something that is relevant now as we face uh, a second impeachment trial for former President Donald Trump. I'm also an MSNBC legal analyst. And for the first time since 1969, Democrats now control the presidency, the House, and the Senate. With that control comes an opportunity that Democrats haven't had for a long time to make real reforms that meet the crises that are facing our country right now. So yeah, today we are so fortunate to be joined by one of the leading progressive economic voices in the House of Representatives, Representative Ro Khanna of California. Representative Khanna serves on the armed, uh, armed Services, Budget, and House Oversight Committees. And before becoming a U.S. Rep, Ro Khanna was an economics professor at Stanford and then the U.S. Deputy Secretary of Commerce. He has a degree from the University of Chicago, which is where Jill and I are uh, close to, and a JD from Yale. That gives him the expertise to tell us about Biden's COVID-19 package and its economic components what he hopes the Biden administration will do to help working families, and the opportunities for congressional oversight of the executive branch, as well as advising my generation about how we can improve our government and society in general. So thank you very much for being with us today, Congressman Khanna. Thank you, Jill. It's a pleasure. You have um, a unique situation now. As a member of Congress, you have now voted twice on impeaching President Trump. So let's start by my asking you, what did that feel like to have a second impeachment vote? Well, it was sad uh, that no one comes to Congress wanting to impeach the president. Uh, but this president has just done uh, things that have so undermined uh, the rule of law and everything we stand for uh, as a democracy. To have the president of the United States encouraging a mob to go storm the Capitol, uh, I never thought I would see the day. and so. We were left with no choice. I mean, Lincoln said that uh, mob law can never be the proper redress for grievance. And we were basically standing up for the principle of the rule of law, the principle of American democracy, but with, 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 with regret and with shame, frankly, that it's come to this in our, in our country. And you make very good points, but what do you think is going to happen in the second trial? Do you think there's going to be any different outcome, or is there going to be acquittal again? Jill, every time I have hope for the Republicans to act just differently, I'm disappointed. And yesterday I was disappointed again. I thought surely this time when Republican members' lives were directly threatened, when the assassination was as much about Vice President Pence as anyone else, I thought surely people would stick up for the rule of law and their own dignity and pride in independent branches of government. But we saw that was not the case. Uh, only five senators voted uh, for even the trial to take place. And I, uh, I'm not optimistic that uh, we're going to get 
many more senators to, to keep a real open mind and hear the evidence. I, I think the evidence is so shocking that America may rally and let their Republican senators know how they as Americans feel. But unfortunately, I think you probably have a better insight. Um, before we started uh, recording this, we were talking about all the legislation that you have to deal with now and how busy you are. So I want to talk about the fact that right now, President Biden is using executive orders to tackle COVID economic issues, racial crises, um, but he hasn't obviously passed any laws yet. So what legislation do you think the House will be taking up in the immediate future uh, that might help solve some of the crises that America is facing? Well, we have to get the COVID relief package. We have to get people the $2,000 checks that we promised them. Uh, and there's no reason to wait on that. It's overwhelmingly popular. And it's important that it goes not just to those who need it most, but to the working class and the middle class. We ran saying that this is something that we were going to give to all Americans who are working class, middle class, and we need to deliver. Uh, we, we, I'm very uh, pleased with President Biden's proposal on the child allowance, providing $300 a month uh, for families with young kids who have hardship. The Columbia University shows that that would cut child poverty in this country by half. Uh, it's probably one of the most progressive parts of uh, Biden's entire uh, proposal. Uh, we need to push for the $15 minimum wage that would lift wages in this country in a dramatic way uh, up the entire pay scale, uh, because if you move up to 15, others will get a raise as well. Uh, and we need to make sure that we have the money for vaccine uh, distribution. The president has a great plan to have FEMA centers all over America giving shots to, to Americans. Uh, we need to support local and state governments in expediting the distribution of these shots. And um, a lot of this, of course, revolves around money, which brings us to your particular economic expertise. And um, I have to mention, I'm wearing a special pin for you, which is the dollar sign because of your economic background and because so much of what we need to do in the country does require funding. So let's start with talking about how to fund the relief that's needed in response to the devastation of COVID. At the beginning of the pandemic, which is nearly a year ago now, there was a $2 trillion stimulus package um, that expired and then there was deadlock and nothing happened. And now finally, uh, just before leaving office, President Trump did sign a second relief package, but it was less than half of the original. Uh, how badly did the nine-month delay from one to the other hurt the economy and specifically working families? Well, it had a devastating impact on many working families. Uh, it's important, Jill, as you said, that the economy is not just about the stock market. It's not just about our GDP. It's about millions of people and whether they can afford rent, whether they can afford healthy food on the table for their kids, whether they are being kicked out of their house because they can't uh, pay the mortgage. It's about small businesses that are closing down. So what we have not accounted for in this country is the extraordinary suffering that millions of Americans have for, because of no fault of their own. No one could have uh, predicted the pandemic. No one could have predicted stay-at-home orders, which we needed to keep us safe. Now, the, the, what's unfortunate is when you have a developing nation, when you have nations that don't have the wealth generation that we do, these are very difficult choices. 
But in our country, when in my district in Silicon Valley, you have uh, tech billionaires making billions of dollars, trillions of dollars because of the digitization of the economy, surely our nation can afford to make sure that every American has basic dignity. And we have failed at that. We have failed. And that is a, uh, a real a stain on our country and why we need to immediately change course by getting this COVID relief bill passed. You know, something you said makes me think about something, which is that by giving money through the relief package to working families, they will pay rent, which then will keep landlords in business, which will then allow them to spend money in the economy, which will keep manufacturing and sales jobs opened. So it it's really not just helping a family stay in their home and provide food for the family. But it has, uh, I don't know, I mean, I hate, I don't want to say trickle down because that's such an awful concept that I don't believe in, but it, it's a trickle up by giving to yes. the bottom. We're helping everybody else to survive. So you're absolutely right. I mean, Robert Reich calls it bottom up economics. It's increasing oh, consumer yeah. spending. So there, there you go. You're uh, right on point. And, okay. you're, 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 and you're not just increasing consumer spending, you're keeping families together. You're keeping communities yes. together. You're keeping local businesses thriving. So much of our challenge as a democracy, as people are online, uh, engaged in a lot of this extremism and hate, we need to support local communities. We need that structure, that fabric of small businesses, of neighbors, of faith-based institutions. And when you have the kind of disruption that we've had, that really hurts communities. So this is good for the economy, but it's actually good for uh, just American society uh, to preserve family and community. Are there any specific things that aren't in the second package that you would like to see in a future uh, package, relief package? I do believe that we need these checks to be monthly, at least until we're past this, uh, the COVID crisis. We, if we could find trillions of dollars to lend uh, to corporations and to buy out that, their debt and their bonds, why can't we find the money to have relief for ordinary Americans? And so uh, you can't just give one check of 1400 extra dollars or 2000 total dollars and expect that people are going to be able to pay the rent. And the rent moratorium, I, I, I appreciate that. But what's going to happen when the moratorium is all, uh, over with? Because then you're going to have backed up rent payments. It's not like those are forgiven and people are going to go more and more in debt. I read on the Washington Post this morning, some economists saying, well, we don't want to give this, these checks to people who aren't going to spend it immediately because they're going to use it to pay down their credit cards and pay down their mortgage and pay down their student loans. And I'm thinking, isn't that a good thing? Do, do we want people to be burdened with twenty, thirty thousand dollars $30,000 of credit card debt and $50,000, dollars of student loans? We need them to be paying down their debt. Debt is a restriction on our freedom. And that's this is the point I think Democrats don't make often enough. We are the party of freedom. Freedom isn't just freedom from government interference. Freedom is the freedom to start a business, to pursue your life, to buy a house, to start a family. And when you have huge debt, you don't have freedom. So what is the right amount of how much that check should be? I mean, we have heard amounts of, um, you know, the $600 check, then there was a $1,200 check. Now maybe there's a $1,400 check. What, what would be the right amount for a monthly check? Tim Ryan and I have said it should be $2,000. We said this in, in March. Uh, it's something, in my view, that our country can't afford. We can't afford to do it indefinitely. I don't think you know, it makes sense in terms of a $2,000 a month 
uh, every month for all Americans indefinitely, that would be unaffordable. But can we afford to do it for six months for working families in the middle class who have had a, uh, an extraordinarily hard time? Of course we can. Uh, but my hope is I'm glad that we're at least getting the $1,400. Let's pass that. And let's not wait till mid-March. People need those checks and that, that money now. Let's get it through. I've said, look, do I want Republican support? Sure. But Susan Collins didn't get elected president of the United States. Joe Biden did. And everything he has proposed in this $1.9 trillion bill is, is in the plan he campaigned for. This is not Ro Khanna or Elizabeth Warren or Bernie Sanders adding a lot of progressive things. This is what Joe Biden ran for, and he won. And he deserves to get his agenda enacted. And the Republicans, if I'm understanding correctly, are arguing that you can't give out that much money because it's going to make people have a check from the government that exceeds the amount that they could earn working. And so they're going to stay home and just take the check. This goes back to um, you know, the 70s and the welfare argument of don't give people any welfare because it, it's a disincentive to their working. Is that, first of all, a correct way of stating the Republican opposition? And if it is, how do you answer that argument? Well, first of all, the economic studies show that that actually isn't the case. The economic studies show that uh, the biggest challenge to people working is that the job openings don't exist and the jobs don't exist and that this, have had, this has had the unemployment extension and the in additional unemployment has had no depressive effect on jobs. But just practically, who are these people? I, I want to meet these people. Uh, have the Republicans introduce them or have them testify who are saying, oh, we don't want a job because we want a check, which we don't know, by the way, whether Congress is going to give us one check or whether it's going to be another nine months. I mean, you'd have to be crazy to rely on Congress to make ends meet. I don't think any American thinks that Congress is competent enough to give them checks to survive. I have yet to meet a single American who doesn't want a good paying job and who wants to rely on uh, the incompetent Congress to support them. So they keep making these claims, but have you noticed they never actually talk about these people? Like, call them, have them testify. I want them, I want Lindsey Graham or someone to hold a hearing where he introduces the American people to all these folks who rather take a check than work. Especially now during COVID where people are so anxious to be back in a workplace, to be with other people. Exactly. Even if they don't love their job, the thing they do, they love being in the workplace. So mm -hmm. it's, yeah, for sure. Um, I, I just want to get into um, one, uh, you mentioned Senator Collins and uh, kind of the Republicans' objections. How bad would it be for them to delay this in the Senate? Because right now we're, we're seeing, you know, bipartisan senators met with um, Joe Biden on Sunday. Do you have any insight as to where this uh, bill is in the Senate, what the status of that is, and how bad it would be to delay this bill uh, every single day that we are waiting for it to be passed? Well, they are trying to delay it, and it's it's hurting Americans every day that it uh, it gets delayed. And I... I've been consistent when Donald Trump had proposed a larger stimulus. I said, we'd have to do something. My concern isn't the politics, it's helping families. And uh, we, need to, we need to act. Now, if they say, look, uh, uh, here's our plan, Biden's plan, here's what I campaigned on. Uh, Susan Collins, others get on board and maybe we make a few changes, fine. But we're not gonna allow this process to drag out weeks and weeks and weeks. And so I think we have to get something done in the next couple of weeks.
Right. And I think you mentioned an important point, which is just how do we get the facts out to the American people? And a lot of Biden's plans, you know, make sense morally and, econo- and uh, ethically to me, especially during one of the worst economic downturns of recent times. But a lot of Republicans and purple or red state Democrats see the, you know, $1.9 trillion is too much government spending. So I guess, how do you think Democrats and the Biden administration should communicate this price tag uh, to the American people to help them understand um, the need and reasons for it? Well, I think most Americans understand that if small businesses go under, if families are evicted, if people don't have enough food to give their kids, that that's going to have a much worse effect on our economy and that that's going to hurt economic growth. But the biggest issue is, well, what is the consequence of a deficit? And the consequence of deficits are eventually inflation or hyperinflation. Well, we have no inflation in the economy. Uh, the, the inflation just doesn't exist. Obviously, it doesn't exist because people aren't out there buying things. They're not out there out and about. Uh, so the idea that you would overheat an economy where people aren't going out to restaurants and aren't going out to plays and aren't flying just doesn't make logical sense. If we were in a situation where inflation were creeping up, then I would say, yes, let's make sure that we're not uh, overspending. But we're far mm-hmm. from that. And this is a time where it would be a mistake not to spend to grow the economy once we start to see that growth. And if there is then creeping up inflation, then we can adjust the policy and pay down the the debt. Yeah, for sure. And I think the bottom line for so many American families is that they just want to see government work for them and actually get this stuff passed as quickly as possible. So um, that is definitely something that we will be watching closely on. Um, you know, yesterday, Secretary um, or Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen was confirmed and she was sworn in. Um, and she urged Congress to pass a package that includes um, an additional $1,400 providing expanded unemployment benefits, which we mentioned a little bit before on the podcast. Um, what is your thought on uh, her becoming the new Treasury Secretary? Secretary, and I guess uh, the progress that she can make in the Department of Treasury. Well, she's a brilliant person. She's uh, uh, obviously very well respected, uh, respected among progressives, respected across the aisle. Uh, it's history making in her uh, shattering the, uh, the glass ceiling, no, no first woman to be uh, Treasury Secretary. So I, I have a lot of confidence in her, in uh, the job she's going to do, and in her prioritizing working families of the middle class. So you mentioned already um, the $15 minimum wage, which right now has over two-thirds of all Americans supporting it. How important is it for Biden to raise the minimum wage? And, And by the way, the idea is not to raise the minimum wage this year, but over four years. Um, both politically and economically. And, and when I say economically, in terms of not just the people who will get the increase, but I think you mentioned it has, again, a trickle-up effect of people who earn more than that will get a little raise because the minimum wage went up. Joe, you're absolutely right. I, I think it, look, it looks like you have a PhD in economics. <laughs> all the economic uh, insights. Uh, the, the, the reality is, is, is this. Uh, American workers aren't getting paid what they deserve. If you look at worker productivity, it has increased. And based on worker productivity, Americans should be getting $23. Not That's not what uh, progressives or someone thinks. That's actually what the market should be paying them. Do you think that the minimum wage may actually get passed in this session of Congress? I do. I think we're going to have to use reconciliation though, to do it, which is get get it through with 51 senators and in the House, I just don't think we're going to have enough Republicans' support, unfortunately, to do it. 
can you explain how reconciliation works? Because it's one of those inside the beltway, even more narrow than inside the beltway ideas that not everyone understands what that means. Well, there's good reason because the Senate rules are so arcane and Byzantine. uh, I I don't blame people for not following the procedures. We barely can keep up. But the, the idea is under the Budget Act of 1974, there was this provision that for certain things, you only need 51 votes if it relates to the budget. And uh, minimum wage, in my view, obviously relates to the budget. If you pay people more, they're going to pay more in taxes. That has a budgetary impact. Uh, It's harder to argue, for example, that uh, gun safety legislation has a direct budgetary impact. So things that have a budgetary impact, you can do through reconciliation and you only need 51 votes. Now, some people will argue on the Republican side, no, it's not a direct tax or spending and it shouldn't be uh, able to do it through reconciliation and the Senate parliamentarian has the power basically to decide whether you can do it through reconciliation or not. Well, now that we've gotten into the Senate rules, um, I just heard Adam Jettelson um, on NPR talking about the filibuster, and he has a new book out that deals with some of the rules. And since that is going to be very important as legislation comes up to get the administration's policies and agenda in place, can you just make some comments on whether you think the filibuster has outlived its usefulness? One of his suggestions that I'd like you to comment on was that maybe the rules of filibuster could go back to what their intention was, which was to create a time for the minority to speak, to be heard, to make their arguments, to try to persuade the majority to change their view. But once they were done speaking and holding the floor for as long as they wanted, days, weeks, the vote would still go back to a majority vote. And that that could mean the uh, minority gets heard, but laws still get passed and there isn't gridlock. Well, that is the founding vision. I mean, Madison, Jefferson would have been appalled, Hamilton, if that it would require 60 votes to do anything. They didn't expect a federal government that would be paralyzed. They expected a federal government that would work. And as Jettelson in his book, which is worth reading, outlines, it was Jim Calhoun, I mean, Calhoun, who, uh, a Southern senator, uh, who basically uh, came up with the idea of the filibuster because he didn't want the slave states to uh, lose out. Uh, and so it's really a relic of, of Jim Crow. Why we would feel the need to be governed by that in 2020 is beyond me. We, we ought to be governed by Madison and Jefferson's vision of the Constitution, not by what Calhoun did to protect the uh, interests of slave states. Thank you for that. And one last budgetary or economic question is, you know, we've talked a lot about the direct payments to individuals. But the relief package has also supported small businesses, restaurants, other hard-hit industries. And what do you think going forward is necessary to help those industries? We definitely need to expand the PPP program for them, but the PPP program should not be going to $5 million businesses, $10 million businesses. Let's give more of the uh, support and give people who are making, who need $100,000, $200,000, $500,000 loan so that they can mm-hmm. keep their dry cleaner in business, so they can keep the local restaurant in business. Uh, I support expanding that program and, and, and helping uh, small businesses, but not these big businesses that took advantage of it. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, let's zoom out a little bit and talk about Biden's overall economic plans. Um, I was just doing a little bit of research and um, some top line findings, you know, raising $4 trillion in tax revenue by increasing uh, the top tax rate to 39.6% and raising the corporate tax rate to 28%, forgiving student loan debt to make, making college free for those making up to $125,000 a year, um, expanding by American policies through government purchasing, investing $1.3 trillion over 10 years and much more. What are your overall thoughts on Biden's economic plan? It's a strong plan that we need to implement. I, I, I mean, I, I think the uh, idea of giving free college, I, I think we ought to have public college free, yeah. but at least for people making under 125000 we ought to be forgiving the student loan debts of uh, working in middle-class families. We ought to be uh, having fair taxes on uh, people who've done very well. 39% is just restoring it to where the tax was under uh, Obama and Clinton uh, time. So uh, these are very reasonable policies, and uh, I, I'm supportive of them. And, and how do you plan to work with the Biden administration? It seems like you want some of these plans to be a little bit more progressive. How do you? How can you work with the Biden administration to make sure that some of these policies are more progressive and uh, meet the demands of the moment? Well, the first thing is just make sure even the Biden agenda gets through. Right now, we're in a in a position where the moderate uh, some of the moderates are trying to dilute what Biden won on, and uh, some of us think we have to go even further than where Biden is because of how much working families and middle class uh, have stagnated in this country. But at the very minimum, let's get Biden's through. And so, a lot of progressives are allied with the White House in pushing this through and saying, don't compromise, don't let Mitt Romney, Susan Collins be vetoes on what we do for the American people. So that's addressing one of the issues, which is the division within the Democratic Party. Um, and in a way, actually, Biden's plan is the compromise because it's not far enough for you, but it's too far for some of the moderates in the Democratic Party. Is there any chance that it will attract any Republican support? It should. I mean, it, the policies he's articulating on child allowance, on minimum wage, on earned income tax credit, uh, on funding for vaccines, on $2,000 checks, these are all very popular policies. Uh, the only thing that would prevent it is politics. I mean, the Republicans are looking at, at their advantage in 2022, and uh, some of them uh, do not want Biden to succeed. So that's why hoping that we're get, they're going to come along, I think, is uh, let's give it a chance but uh, I'm not holding my breath. Another issue that concerns me particularly, I was head of career and technical education for the Chicago Public Schools, and so I care a lot about creating great new jobs. And that is one of the things that's in Biden's plan is to get as many people engaged in the workforce. And I even heard yesterday, or, or maybe it was this morning, as the um, uh, climate change plan was being proposed, it was being talked about in terms of being a job creator, that great new green jobs would help the economy as well as the climate. So what are the strategies that can help achieve the creation of these great new jobs? Well, these green jobs are manufacturing jobs. I mean, it's jobs of building uh, solar plants and building uh, clean steel plants and building electric vehicle plants and building battery storage plants. And these plants can be all over. They can be in Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Michigan. Uh, and uh, Senator Schumer and I have a bill with two Republicans, Mike Gallagher uh, and Todd Young, that would put $100 billion into 
the industries of the future and create these technology hubs and these plants uh, across this country. And that's uh, consistent with Build Back Better, uh, President uh, Biden's vision. So we need to start uh, passing these plans to reindustrialize America, uh, to have industrialization that is, uh, is, is good for the environment, that helps produce renewable energy and, and battery storage. And uh, it's a win-win. And I'm excited about uh, President Biden's commitment to do that. Sounds like a great legislation. Um, are there any other kinds of laws that you would like to see passed in this new Congress? Well, the other frontier is our first priority, which is this $100 billion. I think we ought to have the federal financing bank at Treasury be able to work with the private sector to support uh, manufacturing and production. Uh, let's have uh, the federal financing bank work with Ford Motor Company to say, if you put a plant in Lordstown, Ohio, which uh, closed down because there wasn't as much demand for cars. And if you start producing electric vehicles there, we'll partner and we'll partner with you and we're going to create new jobs and then have President Biden go and announce it. I think we should have a goal of opening up 50 new advanced manufacturing factories, one in every state or uh, opening them up where, where we've lost these jobs. But we need the federal government involved with communities, with the private sector to create jobs. And uh, and we have to understand that uh, 60% of this country doesn't have a college degree and that you don't need a college degree to have a good paying job and to have a dignified life. We have to create jobs for uh, all different types of skills and, uh, and, and interests. Yeah. And, and so I'm going to put in a plug for career and technical education and that that is one of the things that should get funded within the schools, because that is what creates a workforce ready for those kind of great jobs. Yes, for sure. Um, so uh, this has been such a fascinating discussion. I have just one more follow up on the economy and something that you mentioned a little bit beforehand, which is the Trump administration relied so much on the stock market as an indicator that always good for Americans. Do you think Biden should use other indicators to evaluate what whether ordinary Americans who aren't shareholders are thriving, and what should those indicators be for the new administration? Yes, I mean, uh, 50% of Americans don't have anything in the stock market, including, by the way, uh, the uh, retirement. I mean, so half of Americans are totally unaffected by the stock market. And it's a small amount of Americans, I think 15% or so, who own most of the stock. So when you look at the stock market, it doesn't matter, yes. But is it the be-all and end-all of an American economy? No. And, you know, Marcus Sanders, a Nobel laureate economist, has talked about uh, alternative systems that measure quality of life, that we, we ought to be looking at uh, what is the, uh, the, the, the education rate of a country, what is the health of a country, what is the, uh, the ability to have nutrition of a, of a country, uh, and uh, have a much more holistic picture uh, what is the inequality, the Gini coefficient? What is the inequality in a country? So I, I, I think President Biden can do a great service if he says that GDP growth and the stock market are not the uh, only North Stars for guiding our policy. For sure. Um, okay, so I'd like to now talk about your career and your career in public service specifically. Before you came to Congress, um, we mentioned at the outset that you were an academic and entered government at a very high level position as a presidential appointee, as uh, the Deputy Secretary of Labor. Um, first, what advice do you have for my generations on lessons on how to enter government and public service? Well, I would say be perseverant. I lost two campaigns. I uh, spent uh, years working for a lot of other people. 
so it's politics is an organic process and it takes time and perseverance and patience. But if you stick with it, you'll have your shot to, to make a, a contribution. And the second thing I would say is find your passion. Is it the environment? Is it uh, human rights? Is it uh, gun violence? Uh, find the thing that uh, gets you up every day that you're passionate about, and you're probably going to be very good at uh, the type of work that interests you the most. For sure. And what made you run for Congress specifically? Because I think your career, you know, you started off as an econ professor and then um, you went to the deputy secretary of labor position. What made you then run for Congress and feel an urge to serve? Well, my, I ran 10 years before that with the Iraq war. My, my grandfather had spent four years in jail with Gandhi. And from a young age, I have cared very deeply about human rights and uh, was very opposed to the first Iraq war. And I challenged someone in my own party and stood up against that war in Iraq in 2004 when it was uh, uh, still fairly popular in this country. I lost that campaign badly, but people saw that I was willing to fight for my convictions. And then for, I spent 10 years getting experience and working in the private sector, working for the, uh, the, the presidential administration. And I felt uh, that Silicon Valley technology was changing so much of our country. We needed to have someone who understood uh, what technology was doing and make sure we had more people have access to that. And that's that's why I ran to represent Silicon Valley in Congress. Sure. And that was something, um, so I was actually uh, a participant, not a not, like I went to the Bernie Sanders rally in Chicago a few years back and it was at Navy Pier and you were one of the speakers there. And I remember you mentioning that and that was inspiring during the moment and it is inspiring now as well. Um, so one last question, you know, as a member of Congress, you were on the younger side. Um, what advice might you have for my generation on just the importance of public service and leadership? Well, I, I think, you know, I'm 44 and now we have some members in their 30s, so it's good getting new people in to Congress and, and, and the Senate. I would just say that uh, your generation has so much talent. It's going to be the first truly multiracial generation in American history. Uh, it's going to see that the first time America, I mean, there's never been a country that's been a multiracial democracy in the history of the world. Hasn't happened. And we literally now are going to have people from around the world, every part of the world represented in America. There's an opportunity that your generation has to finally solve climate change, to tackle global poverty, to have an American foreign policy consistent to our founding ideals, to overcome uh, our racial history, uh, to uh, find a dignified place for every American. And that should excite uh, your generation. I think the, the prospects of uh, ushering in that kind of chapter uh, for America. Uh, and it's going to require uh, public service. It's going to require people to take important roles and not shy away uh, from government, not to be cynical and to recognize that uh, while your generation has challenges, they probably pale uh, in comparison to the challenges that John Lewis faced when he was beaten uh, on, on the Edward, uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge. And so a lot of people have sacrificed uh, for the opportunity that your generation will have. Definitely. Well, this has been most enlightening and educational. I've learned a lot. I'm sure that our audience has. We are very grateful for your time and your knowledge and want to thank you for being with us today. Oh, Joel, I enjoyed it. I learned a lot too, and I appreciated all the, uh, the insights. And uh, I, I'm a fan of the, the podcast, so please continue to, to do it. Thank you, thank you so, so much. much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. 
Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.